our elementary room, if you guys are sitting with parents or elsewhere, we're going to dismiss you now. And as they go, if you'd all just reach out a hand to them to bless them, we're going to say, the Lord be with you as you worship. So say that with me. The Lord be with you as you worship. I love blessing them every week. I hope you guys enjoy that too. There's different seasons for us spiritually. Different seasons of the soul. So there can be a time of, of planting and preparation. There can be a time of, of harvest and fulfillment. A moment of rain and refreshing and outpouring. And times of being in a desert of testing. But I think one of the most difficult moments for our soul is the dark night. The dark night of the soul where it seems like God is absent and nowhere to be found. We talked about this last year a bit, but we're going to re-explore this today. What makes the dark night of the soul so complex and difficult is that it does not always have the same reason. It doesn't always come from the same cause. So, for instance, hear this quote from St. John of the Cross. He was a Spanish priest in the 1500s. says this, I think, very truly. He says, God perceives the imperfections within us, and because of his love for us, urges us to grow up. His love is not content to leave us in our weakness, and for this reason, he takes us into a dark night. He weans us from all the pleasures by giving us dry times and inward darkness. So he's saying it's not because God is callous. It's not because he's actually forgotten us. But because of his love, God is motivated to lead us into the desert, to lead us into dry times and inward darkness. And these are the times when our souls just feel so lost, it seems like the universe is just screaming that God is nowhere to be found and you're helpless and forsaken. We saw David here much of last week. And these are the moments that often people can feel lost in, but God in his kindness is calling us to send roots down deeper into the soil. You don't do that unless you're going through a drought, but in the dry times, suddenly you're strengthened by sinking your roots down deeper to find water. And so God... And his kindness may bring you into a dark night of the soul. It's a hard kindness, but it's still a kindness. But again, what makes this so complex is this is not the only reason. We can also be led into a dark night of the soul, not because God has withdrawn from us, but because we have withdrawn from him. It's, it's not because he's trying to call us deeper into fellowship with him, but we have walked away from communion with him. And we're trying to find pleasures in other places, so we sense a dryness and an absence of his presence. Our soul feels dark inwardly. I think this is what First John talks about in chapter 1, verse 6. He says this, if we claim to have fellowship with him, I don't know Jesus, I'm his follower, I'm a Christian, we, we say we have fellowship communion with him, and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. We're missing out on the reality. We might claim the title, we might wear the badge, but we don't know the depth of actual communion with him. We're walking in the darkness. This is the inward darkness that I want to explore today. 
And we are wrapping up a series on 1 Samuel that I think we started back in October or September, took a break for Advent, but we're finishing that today. And last week, we looked at David in this rock-bottom moment of desperation, and God met him and strengthened him. And today, we're going to see Saul in his own rock-bottom moment of desperation and where he does not find strength. So if you have a Bible, I encourage you, open up with me to the book of 1 Samuel. We'll be in chapter 28 for most of this. Then we're going to jump ahead to chapter 31, which is the last chapter in that book. So again, chapter 28, and then 31. And we're done with 1 Samuel. We're jumping into new things next week. I hope this series has spoken to your hearts. So our story begins, first of all, with two important notes here at the beginning of chapter 28. First of all, we hear that Samuel is dead. Now Samuel, this is the one that this book is named after. He was a boy that grew up in the presence of God whose word never failed, never fell to the ground. And he grew up to be a great prophet leading God's people. And he anointed Saul to be king and later anointed David, been a massively influential person throughout the book. And we hear that he is dead. This should not be new news to us because we heard this earlier in chapter 25, but it will come into play in our story today. So that's the first note. Secondly, we also hear that the king, Saul, has expelled all of the mediums and spiritists from the land. It's a bit strange, but this is a command that God had given in Deuteronomy 18 to get people who consult the dead out of the land. It's got to pause. For our modern ears, it's just a little odd, right? Like, does the Bible take this seriously? That like you can consult the dead, that there's mediums and spiritists? This just, honestly, it sounds strange to a lot of modern people. And scripture, however, has a very complex view of reality, that our world is not just the physical world, but there's a spiritual world that's permeating and influencing our world as well, that we're also made to live in and delight in. But scripture recognizes that there are evil ways to engage this spiritual world that have real power. It doesn't describe this a great deal, but it wants us to understand that it's possible and there. So although to our modern ears this might sound strange, scripture has a complex view of reality. That's what we're seeing today. So with these two background pieces of information in place, we are launched into the story with another major war between the Philistines and the Israelites. And this is no routine raiding party this time by the Philistines. They have put together a massive army. It's, it's huge. They, they've brought their whole group together, and they're hoping to cut the Israelite country in half and to bring dominion over them completely. And this is the same army that we saw last week that David marched up with. That the king of one of their cities, Achish, he is the master over David at this time. And David goes up with him, but the other commanders are saying to Achish, why are you bringing David, this Israelite, with us to go into battle when we're about to fight Israelites? How easy would this be for David to stab us in the back and throw this whole war into confusion? So they send David back home from this massive army. And we see that David is probably hoping, sorry, Saul is also hoping that he could go home. 
Because when he looks over the land and sees this massive Philistine army, says that he was afraid. More than that, his heart is filled with terror. This is Saul's worst case scenario. He realizes he's about to lose the kingdom. His people are about to be destroyed and he's helpless. He has nowhere to run, no refuge. And we see this is what makes this moment so awful for him. It says this in verse six of chapter 28. In his worst case scenario, seeing this Philistine army, Saul, filled with terror, inquired of the Lord, but the Lord did not answer him by dreams or Urim or prophets. So in Saul's moment of desperation, where he has nowhere to run, he comes and inquires of the Lord, but he's met with a resounding silence. No guidance, no perspective, no encouragement. Saul is left alone. So where do you think Saul will turn? Who else has been important in Saul's life as a connection point between him and God? Samuel. But how, how could Saul talk with Samuel now? He's dead. He thinks, maybe I can find a medium, a spiritist. So although, in first place, he's kicked them all out of the land, now in his moment of desperation, he's seeking them out. It's changed his perspective. It seems that Saul is not the only hypocrite. He says that as he asks his men where he could find a a medium, almost immediately they're aware there's a woman who lives in Endor, a town nearby that we could go and see. Seems like compromise might be contagious around Saul. So Saul disguises himself, and he, along with two other men, go to Endor to see this woman. And Saul goes to her home, and he asks, I want you to consult someone. Bring them up from the dead for me. And this woman's not crazy. She's not naive. She's like, what are you saying? Like, don't you know Saul, she doesn't realize it's him, has kicked all of the mediums and spiritists out of the land. And they would get me killed if I did this for you, so why are you laying a trap for me? I'm not doing this. And Saul convinces her, encourages her, consoles her by promising in God's name that he will do nothing to her. She will not pay for serving in this way. Isn't that interesting that God, that Saul uses God's name to do something that God would not approve of. That we can use God's name, although we don't walk in God's ways. It seems the woman agrees, is convinced by this from Saul. She agrees to consult someone and says, who do you want me to bring up from the dead? And Saul says, Samuel. And this is the same Samuel that had warned Saul when he was alive that God delights in obedience. And this is the same Samuel that told Saul that he would lose the kingdom because of his lack of obedience. And this is the same Samuel that Saul now thinks it's a good idea to call up from the dead in disobedience to God. Do you see his craziness? We aren't told how. Again, Scripture just shows that these things are possible, although not good and evil. They somehow are able to happen. This woman is able to bring up Samuel's spirit rather up from the dead. And as she sees Samuel's spirit coming up, strangely, she screams. She is surprised, which is a little bit odd. 
seems that maybe here she didn't know what Samuel was about to come up, and as she sees the great prophet Samuel there before her, she realizes her guest is no ordinary person. It must be King Saul. And then she's afraid and terrified for her life, thinking, I'm about to die for what I've just done. I've been landed in a trap. But again, Saul reassures her, saying, no, you will not lose your life. He says, what does he look like? And she says, he's an old man wearing a robe. And Saul realizes this is an accurate description of Samuel when he was alive, so he bows down in reverence to hear Samuel's message. But again, we're not told how. Somehow Samuel begins to speak to Saul, whether by his spirit or through the woman, he begins to speak. And he says from the grave, why have you disturbed me and called me up? Saul then launches into his explanation about how desperate his circumstances are, how awful things are with the Philistine army about to attack. He has nowhere else to go. This is how desperate he is. But Samuel is not having any of it. Samuel says, why do you consult me now that the Lord has rejected you and become your enemy? There's a long season, Saul, when I was trying to consult you and lead you in a direction and you would not hear. But now in your desperation, now you want to consult me. He goes on and he says, don't you know that God has promised to tear the kingdom away from you and to give it to David who you have been seeking out all these years. And then with the worst bit of news that he could receive, he says to Saul, the Philistine army will overwhelm you, and you and your sons will be with me tomorrow. Considering that Samuel is in the grave, Saul immediately realizes he's about to die tomorrow. Says that in this moment, he again is filled with terror, and he collapses to the ground. It's this dark moment of the soul, absolute desperation, rock bottom for Saul. He is without strength, without comfort, without hope. In this moment, the woman and the two men with him try to get Saul to eat something, anything. He refuses at first, but eventually they get him to eat a meal, and then he goes back to his army, get this, at night. It's important. There's darkness on the outside. There's darkness on the inside. It's just as Samuel's word never fell to the ground or failed when he was a boy, so also his word does not fail now. But the very next day, the Philistine army does overwhelm the Israelites. And they're fighting in this place called Mount Gilboa. have an image of this. It's actually a beautiful place in Israel. And it's this perfect place for a battle. You have the Philistines out on the plain and the Israelites up on this hill. But it says the Philistines figure out where Saul is at and begin to hotly pursue him, and they kill his three sons, including Jonathan, David's best friend. And Saul is wounded by an archer, and he says to his armor bearer, will you kill me? Because I know if the Philistines get me while I'm still alive, they will abuse me. But his armor bearer is too afraid to do anything, so Saul, get this, he falls on his own sword and dies. This is in chapter 31, how the story of 1 Samuel ends. This is one of the darkest, most sad endings of someone's life in all of Scripture. There's such desperation and loneliness. They're helpless and without strength. So what do we make of this whole story? 
What are we supposed to gather from this very dark and depressing ending to Saul's life? First of all, we have to notice that First and Second Samuel are together one book. They were divided because in this day, when they wrote out a story, you could only fit so much writing in one scroll. So if you had a really long story, you'd have to divide it into two parts. That's how we have First and Second Samuel, these two scrolls. But it's meant to be one story. So I have ended us right in the middle of the book. That's where we're stopping the sermon series, and it's a terrible idea, I know. So I just encourage you, don't stop here. Keep reading 2 Samuel. This is what many of our women's Bible studies are doing. So we're not meant to end here. God is still working in his people. His plan has not stopped. So be encouraged. Keep going. I also say this because 1 and 2 Samuel are not haphazardly organized. There's brilliance and intent to how these books are put together. So, for instance, as we saw earlier in chapter 27, there's the story about David that builds up to a moment of tension. What will he choose as he's forced to march with the Philistine army? And right at the moment of tension, it stops and takes us into Saul's story. And then we go to this place where Saul is desperate and we know he's about to die and then it jumps us back to David for two more chapters in 29 and 30. We see how God intervenes, strengthens David, rescues him before it launches us back in chapter 31 to Saul and his death. This is not haphazard, but been purposeful by the author back and forth. It's important again because all of 1 Samuel has really been revolving around Saul and David. And it really shows us two ways of relating and following God. And the author brings this tension and comparison all the more closely together here at the end of 1 Samuel. We're meant to look at both of them and compare these hard rock bottom moments they're in. And what does their different way of relating to God show? What result does it bring? So there's a comparison here between Saul and David. First of all, just take in a couple similarities with me. We've seen throughout 1 Samuel. First of all, they both have been anointed king. Saul is currently king. David, we know, will one day be king according to God's plan. Both are flawed men. Neither one is righteous and perfect. Both of them have messed up flawed lives and need the grace of God. Neither one earns God's favor. They are all both flawed men. Thirdly here, it's important to see they're hitting, again, a rock-bottom low place of desperation. So we saw last week, David is in this place where his hometown, Ziklag, has been burned to the ground. And he and all of his men have had their families, their wives, their daughters, their sons kidnapped. And this is a worst case scenario because this is sending them almost surely into a horrible life of slavery. So David's overwhelmed, had his city burned, his family taken, and his own men are such in such a desperate place, they're looking to stone David. That's his rock-bottom moment. But for Saul, we see him here, terrified of the Philistines and without God's voice. And this is where we see the difference begin to be highlighted for us. This is where we're going to spend the rest of our morning. First difference here. God, he listens to David, but he ignores Saul. 
first key difference we see between their lives. God listens to David, but he ignores Saul. As David is absolutely overwhelmed and his own men want to stone him, we saw last week he takes time and he is strengthened by the Lord his God. In this awful, awful place, where he needs to seek out his family, somehow he's able to find strength in his inner being. And he's able to seek God's direction, and God speaks to him, encourages him. So David's rock bottom, he's met with God's presence, even in the awful circumstances. Not so for Saul. As we saw in this moment for him of absolute terror and being filled with fear, he inquires of God and gets resounding silence. Nothing. It's actually worse for Saul than it is for David. He's got his own mountain to climb, surely for David, but we're supposed to realize this is even worse for Saul. Why? We're supposed to understand that the greatest tragedy, hear me, the greatest tragedy is being rejected by God. Even as both are in moments you would wish on no one, you see this is far worse for Saul because he does not have God with him. He has no refuge, no place to find strength. This is not, hear me, to minimize the tragedies we experience in life. When people have been in pain physically for years, that can be debilitating. If you lose a loved one, that is excruciating. It's not to minimize that kind of pain. But still, it's true. The greatest tragedy that could befall you is for you to be rejected by God. That's the darkest place for you to be. And this is where Saul finds himself, without hope, without God in the world. As I read through this, I wonder, like, why did this happen to Saul? How did this occur in his life? Are there seeds of this in me? That's that's where my heart immediately goes. Why did this happen to Saul? This brings us to our second difference here. We see David has trusted God, but Saul has ignored him. He's ignored because he has ignored God. Now, it would be a mistake, stay with me, it would be a mistake to think that God ignores Saul because he's grouchy and likes to hold a grudge. (laughs) That's not it, right? All of 1 Samuel is showing us that God is full of kindness. He's full of patience. He's full of love. So we need to go back in the story and see what happened. Earlier we look and we see that Saul has disobeyed God. God gave him a very clear command and rather than obeying fully, Saul just obeyed in part. As far as was comfortable and convenient for Saul, that's how far he obeyed. But as soon as it got difficult and hard and other people were pressing him in a different direction, that's where Saul's obedience stopped and he went no further. He's always been about other people's voice and obeying them rather than valuing God and his voice. So God has promised to take the kingdom from Saul. He doesn't have a heart for him. He doesn't have a heart for treasuring God or obeying him fully. Just what matters to him, self-serving. So God promises to take the kingdom. But get this, there is still hope for Saul. Saul could turn. Saul could say, okay, fine, God, you're taking the kingdom from me. I'll give it up. Just give me you. 
Just let me have you, God. I don't need this kingdom. I'll let that go. Clearly, there's been judgment, but still I could be yours. But that's not how Saul's heart responds. He, he clings even tighter to his kingship. He loves his power. He loves his name. So for years, he pursues this new one-day-to-be-king named David. He tries to take his life relentlessly. And although David has two two opportunities to take Saul's life. He takes neither of them. Saul has been spared, although he refuses to spare David, and it doesn't wake up his heart. And what are we supposed to say about David in this whole situation? He's been crying out to God for years, probably a decade worth of having Saul relentlessly seek his life, and he's crying out, God, where are you? When will you intervene? When will you silence my enemy? Don't you see what's happening and how I'm being taken advantage of and treated unjustly? And so he's crying out and crying out and crying out and crying out, and God is hearing all of this. I think that God let David stay in this long wilderness, not just to test David, but because he was trying to give Saul time to repent. Do you see this? We've been talking this whole time about how God was trying to shape David's heart and test who he is, but I think God also was grieving for Saul, had made him king, given him his spear, was working in him, amazing things happening, and then saw this turn in Saul's heart, and God was grieving and wanting Saul to come back to him, and he would not rush into judgment. So God was not just testing David through these 10 years of being pursued in a wilderness. He was testing Saul. Will you turn to me? Will you give up your love of power, Saul? Will you stop being all about your fame and your name? Would you value me more than the kingship, Saul? And even though you see David sparing your life, will that wake you up, Saul? This struck me in a new way, that God's not just testing David in those moments. Will you take his life? But what a moment for Saul to wake up, that God is trying to shake him. Don't you see David's heart? Why are you doing this? But after years and years and years and years of ignoring God, his judgment and justice now falls on Saul. You have ignored and rejected me, so I will reject you. You may be wondering, though, as we looked at this story, doesn't Saul inquire of God, though? Isn't he here at the end trying to get his attention and to hear more from him? Isn't Saul having a heart for God in this moment? Not quite. Maybe you could put it this way. It is possible to turn to God for help without ever turning to him to give him your heart. Say that again. Saul shows us that it's possible to turn to God for help without ever intending to turn to him to give him your very self. So yes, Saul is desperate. Saul's wanting help. He's just wanting help to seek out his own ends, though, and he's using God, again, as a means to his own goals. He's not intending to turn over his will. He's not looking to follow him fully. He's saying, God, I need your help in this moment, but I'm still withholding myself and my heart. He's not willing to give that up yet. So he's turning to God for help 
without ever turning to God for God, to give him his heart. Do you see this? This is a great example of what we see later in the New Testament. In 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10, talks about two kinds of sorrow that we can experience, godly and worldly sorrow. It says, godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow brings death. What does Paul mean here? He means there's a type of sorrow, worldly sorrow, that can feel ashamed of something that it's done, that can feel bad about something. So it can be ashamed, but it doesn't want to change. Say this again, there's a worldly sorrow that can wish things were different, can have regret, but this kind of sorrow doesn't lead you to actually be different. There's no transformation. Or again, this kind of sorrow can seek out help in circumstances, but it's not looking to yield itself to God. It's entirely different. It's not about change. It's not about transformation. It's not about obedience. And this kind of worldly sorrow, Scripture makes clear in the life of Saul, it will lead you to death. It will lead you to a place of being rejected where God's presence is not with you, even though he's waiting and crying out for years for your heart to turn. This is a hard message to bring you all. But I think this is what God is intending for us to see in the life of Saul. His immense patience and the dangerous hardness of our own hearts at times. To sit in this a little bit more, we're going to have the band come up here. But I, I want to take us to another passage here briefly as we wrap up. It's from Romans chapter 2. As it describes repentance and where this comes from more. It says this in Romans chapter 2. He's being pretty blunt in Romans, Paul. He says, or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, forbearance, and patience? God is patient. He is kind. He does have forbearance. But we're not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead us to repentance. That God's kindness is meant to prick our hearts and awaken us. So that Saul, seeing years and years and years of God being patient, trying to allure his heart back to him, but he's refusing. But God in his kindness has set that before Saul. Here I am in faithfulness. Here I am in patience. And he's done the same for you and me that he has set himself in Jesus and demonstrated his kindness in the greatest possible way. That I will give myself for you, I will be forsaken and rejected for you, but will you turn to me? So he could not have made his kindness and forbearance and patience more clear to us than he has in Jesus. Because he intends, by setting his character before us so clearly, to prick our hearts, to soften us, that we would say, if this is how good and kind my God is, why am I treasuring these other things more? Why is my kingdom so important to me that I have to hold on to this? My, you name it, whatever your heart wants to hold on to, rather than God. So in this comparison between Saul and David, just sit in this with me. Who is your heart most like? Are you more like David even though you get off the path sometimes, you treasure God. That's your ambition. That's your heart. 
So as he strikes you, you want to return to him quickly. As he leads you into discipline, you're saying, God, I want to be yours. Or are you more like Saul? Where after years and years and years of God prodding your heart, you're like, no, no, no. I value this thing more. That's why I want to sing. There's nothing better than you. There's nothing better than you, Lord. Help our hearts treasure you. Pray again with me here. Jesus, I know we've just talked about your cross. We've just talked about your kindness. This is again where we want to lean on you. As you were so kind to Saul for these years, would you pour out that same kindness on us right now? Open up the eyes of our hearts. Take away that veil. Show us your glory in the face of Jesus. That we'd be led into repentance, not out of fear, but because we have this movement enough in us saying, God, you are so good. Why would I chase other things? As I see how rich and how good you have been to me, let me give myself to you in return. So prod our hearts in that direction, O God. Set out your faithfulness. Display your glorious love. And ask this in your name, Jesus. Amen. And that again, if you're able, would you stand, continue, and worship with us?